0: Hello everybody, welcome to Mindful Metal Jacket. I am Joe List. I appreciate you listening. Here is the very controversial intro. Some people say it's too long, some people say it's too sexy, and some people say it's just right. Well, I don't know where to go from there, but this is Mindful Metal Jacket. I am now recording the intro on video, which is Brutal for me because if I just catch a glimpse of my face and I have reflection, reflection of the laptop and my glasses and I hate my face and myself, although I have to say my hair is looking pretty good right now, but many of you are probably listening on audio only and you don't have to see my dumb stupid face. So welcome wherever you're listening, whatever kind of platform you're listening or watching. If you're listening and not watching, you are able to watch now. The entire podcast is On video, and it's on my YouTube. You can go find me on YouTube, Joe List, subscribe to that, or subscribe to the podcast in the way that you are listening. However, you're listening, I appreciate you being here. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to try to keep this intro shorter than normal because people get really upset, but you can't please all the people, can you? Right? And um, I don't know. I guess I'll just get right into this episode. Actually, you know what? I have some dates I'm going to plug. So just buckle up, folks. I am going uh, back on the road. I will be at Side Splitters in Tampa next weekend, March 18, 19, and 20. One of my favorite clubs. There'll be special guests. April 3rd, I'm in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I don't know the venue offhand. I should. I'm stupid, but Google Joe List, Bridgeport, April 3rd. It'll come up. You can do it. I believe in you. And then um, I'll be in Kansas City, the Comedy Club of Kansas City, April... 7th through the 9th or 8th through the 10th, I'm bad at this, obviously, I gotta get better, but I think, oh, in Austin, Paramount Theater, May 15th, can't wait, I was just in Austin, I'll be back there in May, May 15th, I hope that you're doing well, I am filled with hope and um, some joy as more and more people get vaccinated and we can uh, start to see an end to the pandemic, which to me has lasted um you know an amount of time that was really making me excited to get back there was a few months where you know i was enjoying not having to travel or um live such a hectic lifestyle but and i know that's coming from a place of some privilege and by privilege i mean i was able to make money um in my other job that isn't traveling around, which is uh, podcasting, thanks to many of you. So thank you. That's neither here nor there. Maybe this is why the intro is too long. I go off the rails, but let's get to today's guest. It was wonderful wonderful um, conversation. Oh God, I'm juggling things. The video is going to look stupid. Uh, today's guest was Kevin Griffin, a Buddhist teacher and author Um, Kevin is most known for his book, One Breath at a Time, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. He's also written uh, several other books, Buddhism and the Twelve Steps workbook, Recovering Joy, A Mindful Life After Addiction, Loving Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. You can go check him out, kevingriffin.net. He's been um, teaching... Meditation classes on Zoom, and uh, I first heard him on the 10 Percent Happier Podcast with Dan Harris, which is a fantastic podcast that I recommend. And um, Kevin and I seem to have similar stories. He was a musician, and uh, he was a drinker and a pot smoker. He got sober which we talk a lot about, and um, then he became—he was very into meditation and Buddhism and became a teacher, and you'll hear all these things, all these um, stories, and he's a really funny guy, um, and uh, just an interesting guy, and I really enjoyed the hell out of the conversation. I got a lot out of it. I hope that you will too. And um, I guess I should wrap up. I don't want to be too long. I guess it's, uh, you know, sometimes you got to take on this constructive criticism. I'm too long, but here I am delaying and pausing and just staring into the camera like a creep. Anyways, I appreciate you guys listening. Let's get a nice, sexy quote out there. This is from uh, Tara Brock's new book, which I'll show you guys if you're on camera. Tara Brock, Radical Compassion, who I mention a lot. I thanked her in my special her books are great. Her podcast is great. I recommend her podcast. But here's a quote from somebody named, I'm going to butcher the name, Veronica, oh God, Tuga Leva. Ah, geez, it was going so well. Anyways, here's a quote from chapter four of Tara Brock's new book. We speak about losing our minds as if it's a bad thing. I say lose your mind. Do it purposefully. Find out who you really are beyond your thoughts and beliefs. And that's one of the things we'll talk about in this episode is not identifying with your thoughts and fears. You'll hear it all. It's one of my favorite episodes. So please enjoy this conversation with Kevin Griffin. Thank you for listening. I love you. live this is it. this is it it always feels so strange at the beginning of a, a show because we're sitting here and then now it's a show but it wasn't a moment ago
1: yeah reality is a construct you know so there you go <laughs> whatever that means
0: i have that's one of those uh terms and words i'll throw out there i find myself just throwing things out there particularly in Interviews or discussions when I feel in, intimidated and nervous, I'll just throw yeah. things out, and as they're coming out, I say I don't know what I just said.
1: As long as nobody challenges on you on them, it's great because you sound like a smart person. But then if somebody asks you to actually explain what you just said, you're in deep shit. So
0: it's happened to me before. My favorite example of this, I wasn't involved, but my wife was on a uh, like an interview with somebody about a show and. And the person asked, will your show be irreverent? And I'm so proud of my wife at this moment. We're similarly anxious and insecure. And, and she said, I- I'm so sorry. I hear that word all the time. I just I don't know what it means, to be honest. And mm. then the person said, um, well, and then <laughs> she just moved on to a different <laughs> topic. So it was this great moment where my wife was, was brave enough to admit she didn't know the meaning of a word and discovered the person using it didn't know either.
1: That's a good one. Yeah. Watch, watch what you ask people. Well, it's pr- pretty simple. I mean, reverent, you know, you understand what that means? Sure. Yeah. I want to so, make it clear. I
0: know what the word means. She's, oh, okay. I just want
1: to, maybe we should bring your wife on here so we can explain <laughs> it to her. You know, we can mansplain for her, you know, be great.
0: But yeah, so reverence is, uh, you know, it's hard is there are words that you know what they mean. And then someone asks you to describe them and I'm like, yeah. well, you know, everybody knows that (laughs) yeah um but anyways it's it's funny because this leads me into um by the way i'm not a journalist or an interviewer so this could be what the hell are you anyway uh, terrible at moments what's your excuse i'm a a, a comedian and a podcaster but and and an anxiety sufferer and a meditator so we, we we will get into some things but the most nervous i am in my life ironically is when i'm talking to Buddhists and, and yeah. teachers and meditators, awesome. people I, I go to for, to feel um, calm, make me the most nervous. So I don't, I don't know what
1: that I I totally relate to that. I, I, when I've, you know, when I'm on a retreat with another teacher, I never raise my hand and ask a question. Like, you know, I, I, I always want to be like, I'll just sit and listen. That's cool. You know, <laughs> and, and, and I'll tell you that the most nervous I get, is when I have to introduce someone. I'm fine with getting up and giving a talk, but if I have to introduce someone else, that makes me totally nervous. I don't know, you know.
0: Now, what is it that makes it nervous that you're
1: not gonna do a good job or you'll ruin their resume? I I feel like, let's I'm if I'm teaching, I feel like I'm just being myself. But if I'm introducing somebody else, I feel this responsibility that I don't feel quite the same right
0: um so i want to get into some of these things so you're a do you identify yourself as a buddhist are you a practicing buddhist because some people you know they they do they meditate and they're <laughs> versed in buddhism but aren't official buddhists yeah Where are you?
1: Um, it's a whole other sort of it can be a sort of a technical conversation but <clears throat> i i It would be hard for me to claim that I wasn't a Buddhist, but I don't like to to identify myself as that because of all the projections people have. I'm oddly enough, I'm happier to say I'm an alcoholic than to say I'm a Buddhist. So that's, uh, yeah, but yeah, pretty clearly I must be, you know, right. I'll let other people decide.
0: Yeah, that's that's fair. I think people have um, because people have said to me, well, you're a you're like a Buddhist. And I'm like, I don't I'm not a Buddhist. I just read books about Buddhism and written by Buddhists. Yeah. But um, I I always say I would never identify myself as a Buddhist, but I would say the uh, ideas and principles of Buddhism have helped change my life. But similarly, I do. I say I'm an alcoholic
1: every day of my life. So we have have that. uh, That's good. My favorite people. You know, I I remember reading a article about Roseanne Cash, I think it was in the New Yorker, uh, where she was saying, uh, you know, she does this benefit for Tibet house in Manhattan every year, which is like a Buddhist place. And she's like, but I'm not a Buddhist. I could never be a Buddhist because I eat meat. And I thought, Oh well, I eat meat. Like, uh, uh, but that's a typical like assumption. Like Buddhists don't get angry and they don't eat meat and they wear robes or you know whatever. It's just, you know.
0: Yeah, I've I've had that thought before. I'm like, I can't be a Buddhist. I had a panic attack three weeks ago. That, yeah, no, <laughs> exactly. Like. Uh, um but so but you are anyway you are involved in uh mindfulness certainly are you a um meditation teacher i came to find you through dan harris's podcast and i thought i identify with so much and then i thought i should get this guy on my podcast i enjoy him and then i just didn't um I didn't uh, prepare. I never prepare questions. I thought this will just come naturally. It'll be, it'll be beautiful, but I guess some of the people listening may not be as familiar. So yeah. you are a Buddhist teacher. Maybe you could tell people a little bit of yeah. how I
1: found you. Sure. Let's, I'll talk about that. I, I am a Buddhist meditation teacher and I kind of specialize in helping people to who are in recovery learn meditation and really kind of work a recovery program and, and specifically the 12 steps through kind of a Buddhist lens. So I'm kind of offering this alternative approach to the 12 steps. So how do I you know, turn my will and my life over to the care of God if I'm an atheist, for instance? And I kind of give sort of Buddhist principles uh, as a way and, and Buddhist teachings as a way into that. So, yeah. And I've been sober for 35 years and I've been meditating and doing Buddhist practice for longer than that, actually.
0: Interesting, because that's interesting because so I'm a alcoholic as well, and I've been sober for about uh, eight, eight plus years now, eight years and three or so months. And I was always drawn to meditation and Buddhism because since As early as I can remember, I had horrible, crippling anxiety. Of course, I didn't Mm -hmm. identify it as crippling anxiety when I was five. I was just scared of everything. In fact, I just recently found some notes from I saw like an analyst or therapist when I was seven Wow. And um, these were notes that my mother had written back to him after talking to him. And Mm -hmm. and she was saying, yes, Joe is uh, afraid of AIDS. And this is 1989. So I I thought I was going to get AIDS despite being seven years old. And and he's afraid of cancer and he's obsessed with graves. And I wish I had the notes here. And it it just speaks to all these um, phobias, which was strange um, reading because I had all these mixed feelings of, you know, um, none of these things are new, and it reminded me that these aren't my fault. I've I've been the way I am since I was seven, which from yeah. what I understand is the end of the formative year, zero through seven. And um, so it was strange to read, and then also to, read, to, to kind of wonder what my parents thought of this, and how come I didn't continue to go to therapy. But anyways, all that to say, I've been riddled with fear and anxiety my whole life. And um, I actually, I didn't start drinking till I was almost 19, which to me is late. All my friends had been drinking, but ironically, I was afraid to start drinking because I was afraid of where it would lead me. And of course, once I started drinking, I was afraid to stop drinking because I was afraid mm-hmm. where that would lead me back to. Um, but all that to say is I did I was interested in meditation and a meditation practice while I was drinking but I did not have any amount of uh discipline to pursue it but it sounds like you actually did pursue it and, and did do some meditation while you were out as we say.
1: Yeah, um I mean everybody has their story, you know. One of the ways that I view my story is of these kind of parallel paths which in a way, you know, we're both trying to address the same thing. For me, it's depression, not anxiety, but they're just flip sides of the same coin. Right. Like, really, they are literally, I believe, partners that just kind of do a dance. But um, so, so throughout. In, in my 20s, particularly, you know, there was this kind of yearning for some kind of spiritual solution at the same time that I just was, you know, smoking pot daily and drinking alcoholically or, you know, to, you know, blackouts and et cetera, on a sort of, you know, periodic basis. So, So there was this and, and and as I say, you know, the drinking and drugging was was trying to solve the same problem, right? Just like you know, with as it does for anxiety, that you're trying to get loaded to deal with the feelings that you can't manage. Um, and and so, yeah, I did. You know, I think I inherited discipline from my father. He was a very disciplined person, and uh, and so I. I did learn to meditate. I first started doing TM when I was 28 and, and they just tell you do 20 20 minutes twice a day, just, that's what you have to do. And, and I kind of, uh, my Catholic upbringing kind of kicked in too, like, oh, I have to do this or, you know, something bad will happen, <laughs> you know, like right. magical thinking, which can help be helpful. And then, uh, you know, I got into Buddhism, which partly through a woman, you know, like, oh, well, if I med- do Buddhist meditation, she'll like me more sort of thing, you know, typical guy. Um, and I mean, Buddhism, it's so compelling. The teachings are so compelling. And, and so now instead of just a meditation that was supposed to like fix me in some magical way, the Dharma started to like really make sense to me and inspire me. And I felt like, oh, these teachings, like they really speak to to reality, to life. And, and there was like the magical component as well in my mind. But I didn't, I was enough of a periodic uh drinker and you know as i got more into meditation i see i seemed to get more of a control over my uh, over everything else i was able to like behave in a way that i could continue to stay in denial uh but eventually the whole thing collapsed uh as well you know the the meditation as well as the as the um you know control of the drinking and using and and uh and then it was you know sobriety or bust you know?
0: right yeah it feels like everything tends to uh collapse if you keep drinking yeah. and using because i you know similarly i wasn't meditating at that time or maybe i tried to meditate here and there or i tried to find something the internet wasn't uh, obviously obviously for you it wasn't but it wasn't as readily available um in my 20s, I guess, or maybe it was, and I just didn't know how to use it. I don't know. But so meditation was sort of, uh, to me, it felt like it was hard to come by, but I would always have some mm-hmm. kind of exercise routine or writing routine. I was always one of these people that thought I could write or work out my way through it, or I had to get the right incense in my house, and that would make mm-hmm. me cure my thing. But exactly what you mentioned for me is, was an anxiety? And my anxiety led to depression and I'm sure uh, it works vice versa, like you said, but it was definitely trying to um, self-medicate obviously. And which it would work for a while for me. I mean, drinking Mm -hmm. for me would, I was less anxious when I was drinking, no question about it. But, and then I was 50 times more anxious um, the next morning. And of course you have to start drinking again to prevent it. And Mm -hmm. I always say this I'm like for, it ended up for a decade for me I was either drinking drunk or hungover I was one of those three states essentially for like uh, 10 straight years uh-huh. and uh, obviously my anxiety didn't get uh, any better yeah
1: yeah it's it's amazing the way we I mean I, I like the way you described when you you know you didn't drink because you were afraid of what would happen and then you. St- then when you started drinking, you were afraid to stop. But you know, it just points to how we just get, put ourselves into these boxes, you know, and we just sort of get these really, and I think particularly for addicts, which I, it's usually how I refer to, I mean, alcoholic addicts, uh, an alcoholic is an addict in my mind, but anyway, particularly for addicts, we really, you know, we get, into this like space that, as you're saying, we're afraid to step out of it. And it's one of the things that really cripples our lives, you know, that because it's not just the drinking and using or, or the behavior that's we're trapped in. Typically we're trapped in, you know, relationships and jobs and family situations and all kinds of things because we have such a limited... I think in some ways a really limited idea of our own agency you know where there's this sort of helplessness that comes along with our addiction and the, that really limits our view of the world it certainly was my experience you know I, I just had a very limited idea of who I could be and, and what was in a way kind of safe you know uh, what what was what were my potentials and you know what and what can I just simply not do? Or I could never like be happy having a day job, for instance, or, or I hate school, you know, uh, just all the kind of stories. And then when I got sober and got a job and went back to school, I was happier than I'd ever been. So there you go.
0: Yeah, no, I, I was very uh, similar. I feel like we have very uh, similar stories because when I I graduated high school and I thought everyone was kind of saying you got to go to college and I thought I'm going to pursue comedy which I did do Um, but my idea I I just felt like I had this very um, victim-y mentality of "Ah, I'm tired of being told what to do and homework and I started as the man and everybody was against me of course which got worse when I I started drinking obviously and um, I always felt like everything was happening to me people the i didn't get on this show because they hate me or something and i didn't Mm. i didn't get laughs this night because the audience hates me or whatever whatever it was everything was happening uh to me is what i felt like but and then and this goes into meditation and and buddhism i think is you start identifying with all your thoughts which is what gets you in in real trouble is that you know i am this anxious guy instead of i'm experiencing anxiety i am anxious or i am depressed or i am a loser i'm a piece of shit i procrastinate and all those things you just get caught in that that cycle in that wheel and i had no um skills or ability until basically relatively recently through a a regular meditation practice that i am not my thoughts are not reality and fear is just fear and also therapy has helped me and yeah it's interesting because I'm, uh, um, I practice a 12 step program, but for me, it's like that can't be everything. I've needed therapy and, um, Buddhism, the Dharma, as you, as you talked about. Um, but really, it's that non, uh, identification that's, that's helped me so much. So if I could ask, what, what, how long did you, were you drinking and using for, and, and what did it, look like for you? You mentioned you were a blackout. Like I was like a, a vandal and I would just go crazy. Were you, mm. did you go inward and isolate or or what What kind of?
1: No. Drug? Well, I started drinking when I was 16 and I stopped when I was 35. I, I had kind of a strange arc. Uh, I started smoking pot when I was 17 and that also stopped when I was 35. And my drinking and then then I started using a lot more drugs in my late teens and and blend and mixing it with alcohol blending it with alcohol you know um, and so actually my my most dangerous period was in my late teens and early 20s when I would that's when I probably had the most blackouts and and I would mix, you know, barbiturates and alcohol, which is potentially a deadly combination and, and whatever else, you know, cocaine or, uh, you know, opiates and, and, but as I became a professional musician and I had to, and I was playing in clubs five and six nights a week, I had to then, uh, control it. And, and I also, um, was what we used to call a short hitter. I don't know if you know, that's a common phrase anymore. A short hitter is somebody who really can't drink or take many drugs. They give out pretty easily. So I I don't have a strong constitution. So I burn out on pretty much every drug. Like I I took speed for about six months and I just couldn't take it anymore. Like after that, I couldn't even drink coffee, you know? And so And hallucinogens I kinda hated. And, you know, I I got to a point where I was just on a beer and marijuana maintenance. And I'm playing in clubs where you have to be like able to stand upright at one o'clock in the morning to play the last set. So so I kinda that in some ways saved me, but it also helped me stay in denial, right? Because I did I was able to sort of get out, away from the possibility of a real bottom. I would still over the continuing over the succeeding years, I would still occasionally drink to blackout, uh, you know, or get sick or, um, you know, all that. Stuff and and I smoked pot, but the the other part of my story was that I was smoking pot all day, so I didn't drink during the day, you know, which was like another wet thing that showed I'm not an alcoholic, you know. I would just stay stay high all day, and then I would take a little break around dinner time, and we'd play the first set, and after the first set, I'd smoke a joint, and after the second set, I'd have a beer. And and so on and you know, it was all, all became this very routine thing. Um, but as I say, then it, you know, I would hit these other moments. Like if maybe I didn't have any gigs for a while and I'd be binging more or, uh, you know, things just got ugly at the end, uh because I was like cheating on my girlfriend and, you know, stuff that I, I never really, I'd, I'd always sort of felt like I had some integrity and I kind of lost it all sort of in those last couple of years. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I know that feeling
0: and that feeling of, um, I, I would have this feeling of, I think I'm, than this, You know, yeah, I think I think right. my parents raised me better than this. I have better morals than this. Um, because like I said, I was a, a, a vandal. First of all, very similar. I identify with the the show as I'm a performer and you're a performer. And yeah. I, I always talked to I would always laugh about the show is in the way I, I would do, <laughs> you know, a gig up at some cool place or location or a city and, and go, God, I, these these two sh- I got to do these two goddamn shows and I have to pace and uh yeah. it's it's annoying instead of you know i now i get to look at it as I, I get to do comedy this is amazing i make a living telling jokes but at that point yeah. it was i can't wait to finish these stupid shows so i can really get after it um That's right but i would um when i was drinking i would become I of all this anger obviously suppressed anger and um I would just go crazy a lot of the times and and, and vandalize and steal stuff. That was my big thing. And um, breaking oh. the arms off parking garages. That was a big thing I liked doing. And oh, nice. That's, and, that's cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I thought it was cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know. That, why, why do you
1: say obviously you had a lot of anger? anger. Well, I, I think it's obvious if you're running around breaking
0: things, it seems oh, like. Okay. Right? Maybe not. I don't know. Is that? Yeah, is yeah. It, yeah.
1: Not? it makes sense. Yeah
0: um but yeah so i would be smashing and uh and and breaking things but Mm. um and then some of this and i realize now some of that anger is still there and just in the form of um you know road rage or something but i was talking to my wife the other day we were walking we were in like austin or something and i'm like i still have the thought sober and you're sober i'm like i would like to take that plant and just throw it across the street i still have that in me uh-huh. that rabble rousy thing and some of that too is you know growing up a stones fan and they're throwing the tv out the window and it, it just <laughs> seemed cool to me and i don't know if you had this feeling but and i feel like some people can identify with this is this idea of living life to the fullest. And to me, that meant what that looked like to me was staying up till sunup, And this idea of sort of Tom Waits and Frank Sinatra and the stones. And (laughs) that's, that was living life to the fullest. Tom
1: Waits and Frank Sinatra rarely (laughs) mentioned in the same sentence.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, but the, that idea of this bar room, stay up late, looking for dames. And, and so that's what I identified was like, we got to go, you know ring a ding ding and go to the diner and stay up all night and it's funny because absolutely fast forward years later now my idea of like you know i do a show and then my wife and i we read and we talk about what we read and you're like oh this is pretty fulfilling too but a lot of it is that idea of what it means to be living and that's how i felt throughout my 20s i don't know if that's idea yeah
1: absolutely no i i get that you know um i mean because i wanted to be a rock and roll star, so. You know, right away, you're kind of trying to blow up your, make your world very big. And, and yeah, the, the, I always had this idea that like people who got up in the morning and went to work were just losers, you know, I mean, really, how lame is that? It's like, you know, I'm living the life, you know, I'm like, it's like four o'clock in the morning and I'm staring at the, you know, the static on the TV screen and I'm, you know, trying to find a roach that's underneath the couch, you know, and I think it's just awesome, you know, Uh, I know. Yeah, it's very weird, but I want to circle back to something, something though that came up for me as you were talking, which is the connection between fear and anger, you know, because, you know, you identify anxiety as your kind of, primary underlying emotional challenge. And then what comes out in your, you know, when you're removing your inhibitions and in a drunken, you know, state is, is anger and how, you know, I usually think of it as I usually think that anger uh, is a result of fear. You know, like road rage. Road rage, the reason people get angry when they're driving is because they're afraid. They don't, they're not conscious of their fear, but something dangerous happens and they feel threatened. And the reaction is to protect themselves. It's very instinctive, right? The anger. So it's interesting to think about, can that work the other way? Can can anger? I, I don't think so. But anyway, uh, I just wondering if that, if there's some connection for you in that, you know, anyway, just to well, analyze. I mean, I feel like
0: it It can work the other way that anger leads to anxiety, right? Because, I mean, you, yeah. you feel this for me. I mean, I have a, a huge fear of uh, or have had in my life a huge fear of confrontation or what I perceive as confrontations. So, uh-huh. Uh, you know, having um, that fear of confrontation of I, I need to say something, I need to stand up for myself in a family situation or, or whatever kind of or professional situation, yeah. I guess, does lead to this anxiety of, oh, my God, what if I have to deal with this? Or maybe the anxiety started first, but.
1: Um, well, it's also control, too, right? Certainly. I mean, that's what a lot of fear comes out of is control. That's a lot, you know. The, the anyway, uh, maybe I'm going too too much into analyzing you.
0: No, no, I appreciate it. I need to be analyzed all, all the time, but <laughs> but I mean, control is um, that's a big part. Of what what drew me to stand up? It's funny because sometimes people are like, "Well, you're such an anxious person," yet you took this most fearful job of public speaking. But to me, that occurred to me. Yeah. Well, there's a couple things there was, and one is to me, the fear of not ever pursuing, it, like you mentioned, the idea of having like a nine to five job, what I perceived as perceived as being a, a loser, which I no longer do, as <laughs> most of the people listening, I'm sure I'm working <laughs> jobs. So God bless you. But that the, the, I had that fear of being stuck, like, you know, my family or what I perceived as people doing these jobs they don't love. And yeah. the the yeah. fear of not ever pursuing this thing that I always wanted to do was greater than any fear of of getting on stage or, or failure that that was the ultimate fear to me was to live a life without ever trying to do what I wanted to do and also in stand-up comedy and I think music is similar it's the ultimate control ultimately yeah. I'm controlling the conversation you don't really get to say anything and if you do <laughs> somebody kicks you out you know what I mean <laughs> and the better gig some of them you have to get into right it. right but it is a situation where you know, I'm standing facing this way, and it also that's right. plays to my my uh, my terminal uniqueness, as we say. I'm yeah. sort of this special person that's been placed here. Is how my ego works. That mm-hmm. um, it, it gives you the feeling of the illusion that you're the smartest person in the room, at least for 45 minutes or however long you're performing. Um, so that that I guess I don't know. Well, that well, sense. and
1: I, and I really like that uh, that way of thinking about. Your life. I mean, I th- making that decision that, um, you know, you're gonna, um, th- that your greatest fear is, is to not pursue, you know, what really inspires you. I think that's a beautiful, uh, that's a really good fear. You know, that's a really, right. you know, that's not anxiety. That's, that's like existential fear. And, um, you know my version of that a little different was just realizing at a certain point that if i let fear stop me from doing things that i would never accomplish anything in my life and and i have a brother i have four brothers but one of my brothers kind of did that with his life like he will not be listening to this podcast so i don't have to worry about it but like he just decided like he'd rather do nothing than have to do things that he was afraid of doing. Right. Uh, I don't. I don't know how consciously he made that decision, but it's definitely. And what a, what an awful way to live your life, you know. And and I, I will say, for both of us, we're speaking about a decision that was only possible because of some some degree of privilege in our lives because to make a choice to not get a job you know to decide (laughs) i'm just going to play my guitar it's like someone who doesn't is is not in some I, i i mean i don't know that i can't really speak for your background but i know that You know, I was raised in privilege and which I turned away from to become a musician. But nonetheless, you know, it was there. And and just being a white musician, I used to walk into bars in Boston with my guitar and walk up and say, can we audition to play here? You know, and just had I not been white. Probably couldn't have done that, you know. Right. But also just the presumption of that I am, you know, that I should be acknowledged and seen is a privilege, you know, as a white male being a man's like, I assume that like, you know, you're going to want to hear me play my guitar kind of thing. Whereas someone who was not raised and didn't have that kind of background isn't going to. And, and doesn't have any sense of like anything financial to fall back on, you know, if something happens, all of that uh, worked in my favor. And and I've just, that's something that, you know, over the last few years, I've been coming acutely aware of, uh, you know, that, you know, all the, all the things that I think were kind of choices uh, were only choices because of the position I was in to start with, you know
0: right yeah no i i think about um things like that all the time and it's it's hard because i don't know sometimes i have this with um therapy and psychology all this stuff of well who am i to have and it's i guess it's 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 tricky sometimes because you're like well i was raised and my parents maybe they could have done a better job in places but i was lucky enough to have two parents that never you know physically abused me or even Mm -hmm. emotionally abused me and they were together and um we certainly i mean i would say we were middle to lower middle class but i had clothes and i was fed and i you know went to a uh, a public school where there were teachers you know it wasn't a it wasn't a dangerous place mm-hmm. um so it's hard and then you're you i feel this i would feel this sort of guilt that i had a pretty idyllic life and then still ended up so anxious and scared and OCD yeah. and anxiety and all these things. Um, and then I have to just go, all right, well, I couldn't control any of that. And I, here I am back in this same place. So I can't um, um, beat myself up. Cause that, sometimes my, my notion is to yeah. my, my instinct is to beat myself up for having it pretty good. And I go, well, look at all these people who come from broken homes or were physically abused. How the hell did they,
1: yeah, and that, that got me nowhere also you can't you can't compare suffering i mean that's one of the things that i value about buddhist teachings is the buddha just points out that there there's no escape that you know the wealthy and the privileged suffer they suffer in different ways i think Ajahn cha who's a famous thai buddhist yeah. master said something like you know poor people suffer like poor people and rich people suffer like rich people, but everyone suffers. And, you know, and that's the way it is. I mean, I I, I don't know if you watched that interview with Meghan Markle. And
0: I didn't, know.
1: Prince Harry, it's uh, very, really moving. My daughter encouraged me to watch it because I'm not sure I would have and I, I have not paid attention to them. You know, I thought Donald Trump was a lot more entertaining than, than them the last few years. So I was paying attention to him. But now that he's gone, God bless it, uh, <laughs> you know, there was something else, you know, in the sort of cultural ferment to pay attention to. And, you know, what's striking is, I mean, there's a bunch that's striking. And, and as I say, I think it's a worthwhile thing to watch. And, um, but what's striking about what she points to in the royal family is their inability to acknowledge suffering, and clearly their inability to acknowledge their own suffering, much less her suffering, which they they were completely unwilling to uh, acknowledge, according to her. And it's she's pretty convincing. Um, yeah, and and that that i think is as you're pointing to that can be another way you know just sort of an ironic way that somebody in a position of privilege denies themselves care you know it's like right. just because you're the royal family doesn't mean that you don't get depressed you know it doesn't mean that you might not even need some therapy you know it's like you know uh and 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 of course for them though I mean it, it clearly it just all comes from that like eh, we must not let anyone see uh, see this you know we must keep all this private it would be sh- we it would bring shame onto the royal family if blah blah it's like you know that kind of mentality which to me is just archaic and foolish but uh, you know and we see it of course that's a big thing in the in the addiction world. And, and, you know, I hear people say it, I still have, I, I try to think back ha- having been sober this long, it's hard to remember sometimes. Did I feel shame about going to a 12 step program? I, I didn't want to do it. I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to stop drinking and I didn't want to admit. I, yeah, it wasn't exactly shame, but um, but there's no doubt that shame and the and the wish to, um, you know, avoid public humiliation, uh, what you view as public humiliation, is one of the real challenges for people in trying to get sober, right?
0: Absolutely. <laughs> um, that you, you're talking about the um, royal family and privilege reminded me. There was a quote from Jim Carrey that. Actor, comedian, where he said, I wish everybody could be rich and famous for whatever period
1: to see that that's not the answer. Um, I just saw that video the other day someone sent to me. Yeah. It was fantastic. That was really fantastic. Yeah. Cause he's somebody
0: that was, you know, homeless as a kid for a period and his father got laid oh. off and lived in a van with his family and the whole thing and then was wow. the biggest movie star in the world and seemingly more miserable than he was when he was uh, a homeless. Person or, or a homeless wow. child um and there and you and you hear so many um stories like that of people striking it rich and in, in whatever field for me more the entertainment field because that's what i'm always interested in and they're just completely miserable people yeah um and there's so many people that are public figures that are, are clearly dealing with some serious issues who are yeah. in power and have have money um yeah. I forget the second point I had. Sometimes this happens where my, my brain starts saying I, I, all these thoughts come at once and then uh, I lose sure. three of them, but keep one of them. Um, but so I wanted to ask, so you, so obviously at some point you got sober, I assume you hit some kind of bottom and um, got involved in 12 step. How did becoming a uh, a Buddhist teacher come about? I mean, that must have been, I imagine there was some time between getting <laughs> sober and that coming yeah. about.
1: Yeah, there was for sure. I, um, I uh, you know, as I said, I started practicing Buddhism and pretty seriously, I went on some long retreats before I got sober. And when I got sober, I kept meditating and I kind of get back into it after sort of fading drifting from it somewhat. I got sort of back into it, but I was so busy, like rebuilding my life in all the practical ways. You know, I, again, I kind of thought like meditation will fix my life, but and I neglected all the things that I, that practical things. So, you know, I got sober and I went back to school and, and uh, things started to really change uh, in terms of uh, and the externals for sure, as well as the internals, and then at like six, seven years sober, I started to get really seriously back into meditation, and and now I had more of a you know healthy psychological framework to build on, or um, and and so my meditation practice really deepened, and um, you know I live in Berkeley. Uh, There were two teachers here who had regular classes and I became close with both of them and sat with them a lot and was going on 10 day retreats every year, sometimes two week retreats. And so at about 12 years sober, this one year, a lot happened. Like I got engaged and I got invited into a teacher training program. Because there was sort of a, at that point, most of the Buddhist teachers were were like teaching retreats, like longer retreats, but there was an increasing sort of need for people to teach more, just sort of drop in classes and like a day long and things. And, and. and some of the senior teachers realized, oh, there's a lot of people around like me. I mean, I've been practicing for 15, 17 years. You know, a lot of people around who have the background to be teachers, but they're not gonna commit to teaching month-long retreats or something, you know? Mm-hmm. So let's train them. And so the Spirit Rock Meditation Center where, I'm, where I was trained and where I, I now am a regular, I have a monthly class there. Um, they started a program. To te- to and they invited me into it c- called community Dharma leaders, and we had a two-year teacher training program, and and during that time, you know, I I started to teach regularly, and and pretty quickly I realized that there was this subset of the Buddhist community who were sober or were in recovery, and and so I started to offer offer things for them. Especially, especially,
0: yeah. And this Spirit Rock is that Jack
1: Cornfield? Yes, that, that's yes. Jack Jack is the founder or one of the co founders there. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's he's wonderful. He's one of the guys that I found, uh, early when I started sort of discovering uh, meditation. And there was a time in my life where I was really right before I got married, I was dealing with all this panic attacks that I hadn't had in a long time, and it was a really Hard time, and I went to this bookstore and mm-hmm. um, saw The Wise Heart, his book, The Wise yeah. Heart. And it was like an old, used hardcover copy. Mm-hmm. And it was like a
1: savior, it was amazing. And um, he's uh, a terrific teacher, you know. He has a great, I mean, he has a very deep understanding of Buddhism. He's also interested in a wide variety of kind of mystical traditions, but he's also a, a PhD psychologist. And, uh, you know, he, he's able to really get at, he's able to, able to really connect that deep Buddhist psychology with contemporary Western emotional stuff and our, our human our humanness you know take it down off the mountaintop uh, and uh, his 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 book a path with heart which which is from about 92 or 93 is is kind of similar to a wise heart you know a lot of stories it's more uh, whereas a wise heart is like uh, specifically, a, like he says, Buddhist psychology. A Path with Heart is called, a gu- I think, A Guide to the Promises and Perils of the Spiritual Path. And that really helped me. I, I've seen a lot of people in recovery. It, it helped me in my recovery. Um, I think for similar reasons that you're describing, it really gets to stuff that's very meaningful and very practical at the same time yeah it's amazing that all these
0: things sort of work um in concert, which is one of those terms that I've heard people use so I use uh, yeah, but sure. um, it is um it is amazing how much and to me, all of the things that really help me all come back to acceptance I, I mean sobriety uh, yeah. twelve the twelve step program and and Buddhism and meditation and therapy I still go to therapy every week for years mm-hmm. and so many of these things come back to um, acceptance. It's it's so much of suffering is just resisting something that, that is. Yeah. And um, it's frustrating because so many of these things are counterintuitive. Like uh, yeah. when I, I was someone that had a lot of panic attacks, it was so hard. I would get so like livid with my therapist who would say, you have to accept it. You're, you're fighting. Yeah. It. it doesn't work to fight it. And it makes me, it would make me crazy. And then all of a sudden, like so many things, sobriety is like this for me, is there is like this moment of clarity where you're like, oh, I see. And to just experience it and go, oh, here's my anxiety, my stomach's dead. And to kind of sit and just experience um, these appearances in consciousness of, oh, my stomach feels a little funny, my heart's speeding faster than it normally would, or my, I feel a little dizzy. And to realize that all of these things are just sort of experiences in consciousness and you're not going to die from anxiety or panic attack. And it's, it's amazing how, but I guess, I don't even know if I have a question. I'll just, I'll just stop talking and volley it to you. But the acceptance is this through line through all of these um,
1: things. Yeah, absolutely. It is. And I think (laughs) It needs support, you know, it needs support. It needs, um, it needs the support of compassion and it needs the support of mindfulness and it needs the support of wisdom. <laughs> uh, the, it, so what I mean by that is that when you're going through a panic attack, it really helps when you can have this attitude of compassion towards yourself. Like, oh, this is really difficult. And this would be hard for anybody, not just me kind of. Mm-hmm. And mindfulness, which is accepting it means that I'm actually gonna have to feel it. And that's that takes some practice to to feel, to learn how to feel. So you need that clarity. And then the wisdom one of the key, well, there's two wisdom factors, particularly one is the, re, the reminder of impermanence. Oh, this is gonna pass. So that's one of the things that makes it possible to accept it. Because if, if you think this is gonna last forever, which is how it feels,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's gonna be really hard to accept. You're gonna think like, no, no, I can't live with this forever. Right. But remembering, oh, it's impermanent. Okay, that helps. And what you were talking about before, which is it's not me. And, and one of the things that I like to point to, and this is a mindfulness kind of perspective as well is experiencing anxiety and depression as energetic States rather than as psychological States. They, because they are, you know, I mean, they're both, but the, when you when you bring mindfulness to the energetic level it takes you out of the mental you know argument or struggle and takes you just onto this visceral experience of oh wow that's that's intense and and we know like you know the, i mean the the line between anxiety and elation is very blurry, you know, put somebody, put somebody on a roller coaster, you know, wow. You know, they're uh, sort of in a panic state, but they're, they're enjoying it, you know? (laughs) So, uh, and I don't know. I mean, depression too can be felt as an energy as like, Oh, this is just this heavy, energy in my body and and of course one of the antidotes to both of them is to to respond physically and it happens that the antidote to both of them is activity right Right. when you when you're active with when there's anxiety that's a way of burning it off or you know kind of dissipating it and when you're active with depression it's a way of bringing the energy that you need so uh, i just find that You know, it takes it out of this realm of like, oh, I have a problem. Oh, God, like I'm anxious. You know, what's wrong with me? Why am I anxious? What do I have to change in the world or in my life to fix that so that I won't? It's like there's always something to be afraid of. I mean, you're going to die. We should be walking around in fear all the time. We don't know when we're going to die. Shit. I mean, damn, that's really a problem.
0: (laughs) It is, but it's interesting because. You know that's the thing with uh impermanence is it, it works for the this too shall pass works at the good and the bad you know yeah. it's um it, it's an interesting way and it, it it talks about that in um you know the 12 steps of we shouldn't get too
1: excited either excitement can be bad you know uh, absolutely i mean i drank when i was happy because let's have fun and i would drink when i was not happy because it was like i need to cheer up so (laughs) it's just you know yeah it's that's so interesting and and you know what that's pointing to in buddhist terms is that we want to let go of all of it right you know don't be attached to the good or the bad just see it all as just this is just what's happening It's coming. It's going. No reason to hold on to it. Enjoy it. If it's pleasant, you know, don't fight it if it's unpleasant and it's not going to become a problem. Right. Yeah. My, my
0: therapist, who's wonderful and the uh, audience is very familiar with him, Alan, (laughs) who's not a, a, a Buddhist or in recovery or anything. He's just a trained social worker. He's not even a doctor or a psychologist. He's just a social worker, but he he. always he, It matters, I guess, relationships with people because certain people, if you're having anxiety and your mother or your uncle goes, hey, eh, you're just nervous. It's anxiety. Right. You go, fuck you, you piece of shit. You don't know what I'm experiencing. I but know. then my therapist says, it's just anxiety. And it just completely disarms it because I'm like, right. Oh, yeah, it is just anxiety. I'm not dying. I don't, there's nothing wrong. It's just, it's just anxiety. Uh, but he always would say, that's just life. I, I So often I've come into my therapist's office or or talk to other sober folks and I'll say, I think, oh, I got this problem. I'm going to hit them with this problem and they're going to be dumbfounded and we're going to sit here and it's going to take an hour to really unfold this. And it's, and it's something like, I got to have a root canal. And he'll go, okay. eh, that's just life. He'll say, that's just life. What, what else? What else you got? Yeah. <laughs> you're like, oh, yeah. it, it helps to remind yourself that it is just life. and And part of this, and I don't know if this is Addiction or, or everybody has this feeling of I, I, I want my life to just be fully easy, no problems. I keep having this <laughs> sense of right. there's going to be this moment in life or I have to remind myself, I am never going to be a Thibet- Tibetan Buddhist monk from the mountains who just sits and whatever. That's not who I am. That's not how I was raised. Yeah. It's not who I am. Life is not going to become this, you know, uh, problemless glorious situation. Uh, It's just life.
1: And and that's an illusion anyway, you know, so that doesn't, that's not a real person. And, you know, it, it, uh, I mean, it's interesting that, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about, like the, the uncle or the, like, "Ah, don't worry about it. You're just anxious. Where are they coming from? You know, typically they're coming from either, denial because they've never allowed themselves to feel feelings, or they're afraid uh, of your feelings. You know, they, they, it's not that they are really bringing the wisdom that your therapist has, which is this sort of open, compassionate acceptance that's much more, push that aside. It's, you know, we got, don't, don't let those feelings come on. That's dangerous. And, you know, and that's the, that's the really unhealthy thing that I'm sort of talking about with the royal family. It's like, you know, it's not, they're not being like accepting, Oh yes, well, you're being attacked in the press just accept it It's like, no, you're, you just don't want to face it. You're, you're afraid of those feelings. So that, so it is interesting that the, the same words, you know, might be spoken but with a completely different intent and a completely different understanding and 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 then thereby thereby a completely different impact
0: right yeah no it's it's funny because it's just somebody saying it's just anxiety or it's just life and my, my the other thing my therapist always says that's become like a mantra of mine is he just says of course that's my impression of him but uh-huh. i'll he's say he's jewish then i'll or? say yeah, yeah, yeah he is i hope that didn't come off uh, racist or, or precious, <laughs> but just uh, sounded I, like I just, somebody from brooklyn i just nailed it he is he's a, he's a lower east side uh jewish guy in his 60s maybe uh, 70s i think actually boy i hope he doesn't uh, I hope I didn't overshoot the uh, age on that. I think he might be mm-hmm. in the seventies. It doesn't matter, but it pro- I think he sounds like he's in his fifties to me. So yeah, you know. <laughs> um, well, Let's I know, that. No, I think he's he's got to be. <laughs> in his, he, I know he, he he did a lot of uh, marching and taking it to the streets in the sixties. He's uh, oh, that's good. He's just my my hero in every way. But mm-hmm. uh, but he'll always say. Um, he also, by the way, I mean, I'm just giving out all kinds of information now. But he also charges on a scale of whatever you're able to pay. He's so, wow. he's a wonderful socialist he have, a man. I love he him.
1: must have rent control. then. <laughs> rent <laughs> Probably. Control
0: department. Probably. Um, but anyways, he's a wonderful man, but that's neither here nor there. No, it is here. It's, yeah, here. it's just here and there, <laughs> but, but um, he'll always say, of course I'll say, you know, I have this dentist appointment and I, I'm just freaking out and I can't, and he says, yeah, of course, of course you are. That's that's what you do. And it really does help. And it's become a mantra of mine whenever I have anxiety or I'm down or I'm sad. I'm like, of course, of course I'm sad. I, you know, I didn't whatever. I hung out with my family and they're stressful or I have yeah. to fly tomorrow and I got to wake up or whatever it is. Yeah. It, it really does help me to just kind of have his voice saying, oh, of course. It's a,
1: I like the term normalize. You know, that, when I learned that term, that helped me a lot. It's like, I realized that what I'm going through, even though it's difficult and unpleasant, it's normal. It's not because there's something wrong with me, you know, because that's the one that gets me. Oh God, what's wrong with me? Other people can do this. Other people don't get anxious in the airports. Other people, you know, don't care about having root canals. It's just me. And then you go, no wait, no wait, no every, Nobody likes root canals. Nobody likes airports. That's right. It's normal.
0: Right. Exactly. And I, I also have to remind myself, and I've gotten better at this in the last couple of years, is I am doing it. Some people are so afraid right. of the dentist or uh, mm-hmm. whatever it is doing shows or, you know, whatever acti- name activity. So they just don't ever do that. Yep. Um, so I'm like, well, at least yep. I'm doing it. I'm just doing it with anxiety.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's. That's how you do it. I mean, isn't that how they define courage? You know, courage isn't not feeling fear. Courage is doing it even though you feel the fear. And and absolutely. I mean, that's what they teach us in the 12 step world, right? Show up just suit up and show up. I mean, that, that's the thing that's saved my life. You know, it's the thing that's made my life work. It's the reason I've been able to write books and, uh, do everything that I've done, get married, have a child. I mean, I could never do any of that stuff. I couldn't face any of it. Uh, you know, having a job, I mean, it was just too much. I couldn't handle it. School, ah, I dropped out of high school, you know. <laughs> I went back to school in sobriety and I was like, I love school. Oh yeah, I see what you do. You go and you show up every day. Oh, try sitting in the front row. Yeah, my sponsor taught me that, you know. Right. <laughs> I remember my algebra two class. I had this teacher, I, t- I took it in summer school at Santa Monica College, community college. And every other sentence I would raise my hand, wait, just slow down, wait a minute, show me that, show me that again, you know, stuff that I never could have done when I was, before I was sober, like I, to say, in other words, I don't understand because I always had to know, I had to, you know, I couldn't be no, not know the answer, you know? Right. But uh, uh, you know, recovery 12-step programs taught me all of that how to live yeah yeah I've
0: always said my favorite quality in a person is someone that's and I I guess it's full circle talking about my wife earlier. it's someone that says I actually don't know I'm not familiar with that tell me about that and that's that's humility I guess Um, but um, my I have a friend who's um, a sober guy and he's a writer and he always says I I drank for 20 years and I wrote zero books and I've been sober for 25 years and I've written seven books. So take, take mm-hmm. that information. Yes. Because it it allows you to do things that you thought weren't uh possible. And for me it's allowed me to be present and enjoy my life and and enjoy this um conversation. Um yeah. I know we got to uh wrap up but um Kevin I'm really grateful that you were Uh, Willing to do this, and uh, I appreciate it. And can you tell the people where can they find you and uh, your your books and your website and all that stuff? Yeah,
1: thanks, Joe. It's been really fun talking with you. I'd I'd just love to talk about recovery. Um, My website is simply kevingriffin.net. Um, and I have links to my six books on there. My b- best-known book is One Breath at a Time: Buddhism and the Twelve Steps. Uh, my latest book is Buddhism and the Twelve Steps: Daily Reflections, uh, and then there's four others in between. Um, and right now, I'm giving having Zoom classes twice a week, uh, Tuesday mornings, it's morning at least on the West Coast, and Friday evenings. So uh people can just drop in there's no charge just like there's a link on my website. Um so yeah. Um There you go. There's you know probably everything you would need to know is is there through my website. Okay, amazing. I'm going to check out those classes. That sounds great. Yeah, c- come in. That's been it's been really nice. It just as soon as things shut down last March, March 13th, I started my first one and I've been doing that twice a week ever since and it's just, it's really nice because it gives me a way to be with people and a, a lot of people that I've known uh, who, that have come to different retreats and things around the country and actually people in Europe as well. And uh, it's, they're not, it's not huge. It's like I get 30 or 40 people maybe, but uh, really nice. And I just, I guide a meditation and then I talk and I've been going through one breath at a time, actually, for the past year. We're on step seven right now, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I just you know have a twenty minute meditation and then I talk for a little while. It's like an hour or so. Very easy. Um, that sounds
0: great. I did a very similar thing on Zoom as soon as we shut down with like-minded people, and and we just happened to be on step seven today, also. Oh, so really? That's funny. Is it yeah. odd or is it God, as we as we say? <laughs> and, um, but no, and and it's it's funny. It's because I, and I keep sort of thinking about this. You know, the shutdown, the pandemic is been extremely beneficial in some ways in that it's allowed me to talk to people all over the country yeah. that I wouldn't normally um, be in a room with. And, and and it's been pretty amazing for that, looking on the on the brighter side of it.
1: No, I mean, it's remarkable. I know. And for those of us who haven't been directly impacted, it's uh, very strange in a way. but But yeah, there's definitely that advantage. And I think it's going to change a lot of things going forward. I, I don't see that I would stop offering at least, you know, weekly or at least occasional classes online at this point, which is something I never did before. So.
0: Yeah. Same. And it's allowed me to do the podcast like this and it allowed us yeah. to get together. So. Great. Kevin, thanks so much. I really uh, got a lot out of this. I really enjoyed it and I, I hope you enjoyed it as well. I appreciate
1: thanks, it. Thanks Joe. You'd Be sure. And like, give me the link to it. And, uh, put it up on my website too
0: all right awesome we will do
1: mindful metal jacket is hosted by comedian joe list produced by joe list edited by matt kleinschmidt executive producers robert kelly and matt kleinschmidt for the laugh button podcast